There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Oh, this one is going to be so good today because we've got something really different for you. I'm joined today by Amy Jeffs, who is an art historian with a PhD from Cambridge, specialising in the Middle Ages. She's researched things like medieval manuscripts, pilgrim souvenirs, medieval badges at institutions like the British Museum. Uh, but she's also an artist herself and she's come up with a fantastic idea for blending it all together for a medieval history book. So it's uh, uh, Storyland retells the history of Britain using our oldest myths and legends. Amy, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, this is going to be really interesting. Uh, so let's just dive right in. When did you have the light bulb moment for this and how did it come about? It's so simple yet brilliant, the idea of giving a history of Britain, but through what everybody used to believe, basically. Uh, well, it was, I suppose there were two moments. The first one was 5 a.m., November the 18th, no, 14th, 2018, <laughs> I emailed a printmaker called Chris Pig um, saying that I, I really wanted professional help with my lino cut. I just, I'd started doing it, but I knew there was this whole world of professional conventions out there. I wanted to learn it properly. And I emailed him. Um, he has a studio in Froome where I live. And he emailed back 10 minutes later saying you found the right place. And, uh, and I started learning lino cut and producing a series of illustrations of Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which is an origin myth of Britain written in the 12th century. And it was one of the focus texts of my PhD. So there was that. And then there was about a year later, um, I took my prints to see Dan Jones, the historian. Yep. And he said, and we were talking about how to storyboard them. And he said, have you thought about doing it chronologically? And at that moment, it was like, that's it. That's it. He's Start. so annoying with stuff like that. I don't know how he just comes up with ideas like without any effort whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's interesting what 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 makes. I mean, of course, chronologically, you know, I'd been ordering it according to uh, Britain's geography. I'd been finding different angles, and actually, so often with storytelling, the simplest answer is the best one. And I I think that was definitely the case with Storyland. And then I could see that we could start um, just before the flood, the great flood. And um, we could travel all the way up to the Norman conquest and tell a history of Britain as though we were standing with a medieval Britain around about, I don't know, 1500 and saying to him or her, 
tell me the history of this land. How did how did the people come to colonize it? How did the dominant societies that occupy medieval Britain get here? And that's what we the story we might have been told. It's brilliant. Uh, as soon as so as soon as the publisher sent me because this has been slightly delayed because of COVID, hasn't it? And as soon mm-hmm. as the publisher sent me the thing, I was like, yes, yes, we so want her, we so want her. And then they were like, oh, it's going to be a little bit of a delay. And I was like, please oh. don't forget, please don't forget. It's <laughs> such a good idea. Um, so to do it, did it involve going back and gleaning literally the oldest source material you could find? It's such a difficult question. A lot of people ask, like, what's the earliest stories you've got in there? And of course, with um, with medieval manuscripts, when something's written down isn't necessarily when it was composed. Sometimes you don't know. It might have existed in earlier manuscripts or as an oral tradition for centuries before it's written down. And so some of the later texts that I draw from, like the uh, Scottic Chronicon, the Chronicle of the Scots by um, Walter Bauer, that's actually early 15th century, but it draws on Irish myths that are incredibly early, you know, possibly much earlier than I think some of them, you know, intimations of these myths survive in 11th century manuscripts and are probably drawing on an oral tradition that's much older. Um, And so, you know, it's very, I might be drawing from later manuscripts that refer to very, very early stories. There might be quite early stories that don't appear again. You know, it's it's a difficult thing to actually trace the chronology of the sources. It must be so... In a way, I guess you can be a little bit, not cavalier, but a little bit easygoing with it as well, because you are going to find contradictory myths and stories, aren't you? And you could just pick the best one. Yes, absolutely. And the great thing is that anyone who's read medieval histories or chronicles will know they are pretty unselfconsciously biased and they will they will um, sort of shape the material according to the needs of, say, the patron that's paying for them to write this history or the institution that they're part of. So for instance, you know, Matthew Paris, a great medieval historian at St. Albans Abbey, he will happily twist things to make St. Albans look good. Um, And so in writing this history, I suppose my, my interest was in telling a story that would feel relevant to a modern audience. And so while I, um, I pick and choose things that really stuck out to me as telling telling a coherent story of the political history of Britain, but with marvellous elements and with uh, amazing characters. And I was particularly interested in animals and monsters and women. And so um, whereas the medieval sources might put the camera on the shoulder of a king yeah. in terms of their narrative perspective, I might put the camera on the shoulder of a dog. You know, so um, I think it's I've tried to be true to the sources and honour them at the same time as telling a, an interesting story. Yeah. It's brilliant. So you've already mentioned flooding. <laughs> Tell us about some of Britain's oldest myths and legends. So they're tied in with the creation, aren't they? And Noah's flood and they involve giants. Is that right? Yes. Well, that that particular story is the opening story in the book. Um, each narrative is followed by a commentary. So there's a kind of fiction element followed by a placing in the context of where that myth originated or where it survives and how it might have been relevant. So um, there's just this very enigmatic line in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, um, where he says that, well, the character of Merlin uh, says that he's heard of a stone monument. The stone monument will become Stonehenge. It stands on a mythic, on a, a mountain, which happens to be mythic in Ireland, called Killerhouse. And he says it was brought there uh, from remotest Africa by giants uh, before the flood. You know, 
Yeah. And um, and it's just that one line. It's not elaborated upon. But that sounds like a story to me. I mean, yeah. why? You know, why, what are these African giants doing traveling to Ireland with some really big stones? He, he says that the stones have healing virtues. That's another detail he gives. And so the first chapter is an imagining of that episode um, of why these giants decide to make a journey across the Atlantic. Well, not across the Atlantic, along yeah. <laughs> <sort of> out <laughs> of the Mediterranean and up um, to an island in the Western Ocean and erect these stones um so yeah that's and that's before the flood so you know that's the kind of the earliest moment in the chronology of the stories that's brilliant um we some people probably know that one of the oldest names for sort of britain is albion isn't it going way way back yeah uh, why where does that come from? <laughs> so no one really knows yeah. where the, the name albion comes from but the uh, the medieval uh, this particular medieval author of a text called the Congéon, or there was another a Latin version as well, um, makes up a story that is totally brilliant about 30 Syrian sisters who are banished from their father's court. They, their father is a great king and they, they plot to kill him and his and all their husbands so that they can take the throne and, uh, and rule in his stead. Like and he banishes already. them. <laughs> Um, he banishes them in a rudderless boat. They get caught up in a storm and they land on the shores of an uninhabited island. And the eldest sister happens to be called Albina. And she's the most ambitious anyway. And so she sort of picks up the stones on the beach and says, right, this is this is our land and it's going to be called Albion. Um, and they they're just such brilliant characters in the medieval text. They're slightly they're not to be trusted in the medieval text. You know, they're not necessarily goodies. They're what happens later kind of demonstrates that, but I don't want to give the game away completely. But yeah. they, um, they, from a med, from a modern standpoint, they're brilliant. They're heroes. I think they're absolutely fantastic characters. We only know the name of one, Albina, but they they learn to live off the land. You know, they in the in the medieval text it says how they build snares from uh, sticks and learn to fish, and they they basically are like the Ramirs and Bear Grylls of yeah. <laughs> very 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 ancient Britain, pre Britain, and. Um, and they they are so successful in their foraging and hunting that they become very fat. And what happens next is too salacious for the words. So um, that's yeah, that's a great that's a great origin myth for Albion. It just there's an element as well. How funny is it for all the white supremacists out there that it's all to do with uh, Middle Eastern women as well? Yes, exactly. It's wonderful. That in your tiny little brains. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and it's a joy to celebrate these stories and to and to see them through a modern lens as well, um, because you can't get away from those those themes. And and the fact that, uh, you know, Britain is founded by you know, subsequently Britain's founded by Trojans and uh, Ireland and, and therefore Scotland by um, a Greek man and an Egyptian queen. So, you know, this this is a there was a strong sense, I think, in the Middle Ages and for people living in Britain, that they were on the edge of the world, that they weren't an important in, a, in an important position geographically. Yeah. The center of the world was Jerusalem and the places with really lofty histories were in the Middle East um, on the foothills of paradise. So that's a that definitely crops up. Definitely. Uh, let's go outside my M25 bubble because you mm -hmm. one thing you've done really well is get all of Britain involved in this uh I was really interested by how the seven and the humber got their names 
Yes, that's a that is a very sad story. Um, and I mean, the first the first idea is that that when when the um, founder of Britain, who's a Trojan called Brutus, dies, he divides his territory or just before he dies. He divides his territory between his three sons, Locrin, uh, Camber and Albanac. And those territories are called Lurgria. Cambria and Albany, and they will become England, Wales, and Scotland in the future. Those are the territories. Um, and so Lochran's ruling the territory that will become England, and the Huns invade in the north. They invade Albany, and uh, and they're led by a man called Humber. Um, yeah. And it's it's the this is at the beginning of the story of the naming of the seven. Um, Lochran goes up to help out his brother and. Uh, and they meet the Huns on the on the edge of this great estuary, and uh, drive them into the water. And and King Humber uh, sinks beneath the waves in all his mail um, and armor, and is never seen again. And that's how the river gets its name. Brilliant. You one that you've also mentioned as well that you you didn't necessarily do it through the lens of the most obvious people like kings and things like that, mm-hmm. and that you've tried to get women involved in this. Course, uh, yes. How does Conwenna save Britain? <laughs> I love Conwenna. My grandmother thinks she's irritating, which is funny. Oh, really? I, I, think, <laughs> I think she's great. Um, so Conwenna is the mother of two warring sons, Bellinus and Brennius. And, um, Bellinus might be a euhemerization, a mortal version of a Celtic god called uh, Bellinus, who was a bit like the god Apollo, a sort of sun god. Um, this is also in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. And uh, Brennius is jealous of him because he's king of all Britain and he wants a part of it. And so there, there's been years and years of wars and uh, there seemed to be a period of peace when Brennius has gone to Gaul, but then he comes back with a massive army and and meets his brother on a on a great battlefield. And I think at this point, their elderly mother has absolutely had enough, and mm-hmm. she um, she pushes her way through the army right out into the middle of the battlefield, and she runs up to Brennius, who's the one that's causing all the trouble flings her arms around his neck, kisses all over his face, and then does the most unspeakable thing for a queen and, uh, and steps backward and rips open her dress, revealing her aged breasts and says, for heaven's sake, think of these breasts that soothed you when you were a child. Think of this body that suffered to bear you. Think of all the worry I wasted on you if you're just going to continue this war with your brother. You have no just cause, for heaven's sake. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. it. Can you imagine, like, your mum comes yeah. to you and you <laughs> on the battlefield and just says, behave, you know? Yeah, and it's just the, you know, the there's an illustration of it in a, in a medieval manuscript in Clare College, Cambridge, and it's just a kind of marginal pen drawing of this moment. And the, the soldier really are just kind of standing there blinking like what do we do now well, do we... a naked old lady on the battlefield <laughs> yeah. <this>. <laughs> yeah and that's that's a great one because I think one of the it's it's sometimes there's a tendency to see these stories too heavily as folklore and actually they they were produced by quite bookish people um yeah. the stories that I'm uh retelling and especially the Conwenna episode is very reminiscent of a moment in um, the Iliad, when Hecuba, the queen of Troy, uh, bears her breasts to Hector to convince him not to go to war against Achilles. Um, and, and so I talk about that in the commentary. And it's, I think it's a helpful lesson in, in remembering that the people, many of the people that wrote these stories down had clerical training, mm. were very widely read. And, um, 
and there are not all stories that come from the Middle Ages that aren't Christian are kind of pure folkloric um, sort of, you know, grassroots creations. Some of them yeah. are very conscious political um, narratives. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us about dragons on the Oxford yeah okay so that that was one of the harder stories to retell just because yeah. it's so wacky yeah. um and that's found in uh, the Mabinogi on a collection of of Welsh language texts um all of, you know many of them are set in a kind of mythic ancient Britain um and this one is a kind of prequel to so there's there's a story in Geoffrey of Monmouth about um about these two dragons that are locked inside a hill um, and this story explains how they got into that hill in the first place. And it's it's during the reign of a king called Hluth or Lud, um, who we later told gave his name to Ludgate. OK, so we can stay within the M25 bubble, even though we're talking Excellent. about. Um, uh, and he there are three plagues tormenting the Britons. One is a fairy race. Uh, that has such good hearing they've invaded and they're everywhere but they have such good hearing that you can't make any plans against them or to oust them without them hearing and and working out how to defend themselves uh the other plague is a scream so terrible and loud that it causes um women to miscarry in the streets and uh livestock to die and blossoms to fall from the trees um, and the third plague is that the royal stores of food keep disappearing, which means the king can't give any food. He can't eat any himself. And he also can't give any food to the poor, which is an important part of being a king, is that demonstration of largesse. Um, and so the king, Hluth, goes and gets some advice from his brother, Hlevelus, who is a king in Gaul. And they meet in the channel. And Hlevelus is this kind of wise man. He whispers the solutions to the plagues down the barrel of a horn. Yeah. Um, and it really looked, I mean... It's quite funny. So when I did the illustration for this one, I sort of showed one brother whispering into the narrow end of the horn while the other brother's listening carefully. And uh, the editor said it, but it really looks like he's just whispering rude words down the 
down the <laughs> you know, like brothers would do if they had a big horse like <laughs> met in yeah. the middle of the channel um but actually in the story it says that all that um, Hluth can hear is is kind of rude words. It actually says that, but actually, it turns out there's a demon hiding in the horn, and they expel it, um, and then he can hear what his brother's actually saying. Mm. So it's a super weird story. It's kind of really out there. But the basically, the brother says that the second plague, the screaming, is the result of two dragons fighting. One is a native dragon, and it's red, and the other is a. Um, Actually, I'm not sure that they stipulate the color in that particular text, but it's two dragons fighting. One is native, one's a foreigner. So it's it's about this theme of invasion. And the, the, the native dragon keeps screaming because it's being so badly hurt by the foreign invader. And, um, and he says, you'll catch these dragons by uh, setting a trap in the center of the land, which some for some reason is Oxford. And so uh, they uh, makes this a very elaborate trap of a cauldron filled with mead and covered with a silk brocade cloth um, and the dragons appear fighting in the air and fall down into the trap and drink all the mead and turn into pigs you know so it's, it's a very strange story but it it's it's so interesting because it provides this prequel to why there are red and white dragons in a hill in wales where he where Hluth takes them and hides them um and those red and white dragons become a really important symbol for the britons and the saxons that's that's my attempt at abridging a very long and complicated <laughs> narrative, but um, hopefully it's more clear in the book. Well, it's good. It means people have to buy the book to find the whole story. Yeah, find <laughs> what it's all about. Uh, so you could not have done this book, could you, without going near King Arthur? Um, sure. Was that kind of like, oh God, here we go? Like, how do you tackle something that has been done to death over the years by every possible medium? Well, I think the reason it's been done to death over the years is that there's just so much available to, to be inspired by in relation yeah. to King Arthur. And um, and I was interested in the earlier sources about him, not so much the later medieval ones, which have yeah. things like the Lady in the Lake and uh, more of the familiar Arthurian narratives. Uh, and also there was a lot of the French tradition that kind of gave rise to I think I'm not I'm not misrepresenting the material, but you know, Chrétien de Troyes is the is the first mention of Lancelot, I believe, and that Arthur, mm. that um adulterous affair. I wasn't so much interested in that. I was interested in the political, you know, my my aim with choosing all the stories was how did Britain become Britain? Where did the people come from? Yeah. And so Arthur was relevant because he was this legendary king, um, but he but also because his he conquered other lands in in this in the history so he conquers Denmark that kind of thing he's he's one of the if from from the perspective of a medieval historian one of the ways in which um Danish presence comes into Britain you know that's and that's obviously we hear about that through through the Vikings yeah. um and so I guess I had a different interest from most people who are writing about Arthur I I wanted um I wanted to explain why certain places bear names relevant to his story. So one was that a hill in Radnorshire called Cangafout, which is named is mentioned in a, a ninth century text, possibly by an author called Nennius, as the place where King Arthur's dog, Cabal, so that's where Cangafout comes from, Ken, the Ken belonging to Cabal, um, he imprinted his paw in a stone and left a paw print. Um, and so it says there's a stone on the top of this of this hill on a cairn, which if you take it away, 
so the stone bears the paw print of King Arthur's dog. If you take that stone away, the next day it will be back on the top of the cairn. And um, and that hill still survives, obviously, and it's still got the name Cairngafald. And so um, I wanted to tell the story of the great hunt that led King Arthur's dog to run up to the top of that hill and imprint his paw in a stone. And what happened, what terrifying, dramatic thing happened that that the kind of stones softened and were and took the form of, of this dog's paw. Nuts. It is nuts. It is really nuts. About doing it through the eyes of a dog instead of through King Arthur. Yeah, and there is a, there is a wonderful story also in the Mabinogion of King Arthur going on a on a great hunt round Wales, and I think that's a wonderful way that he travel. He manages to cover this huge landscape, but like he goes from Ireland to Saint David's and then up over the sort of mountains and and he uh, and then down to the Severn. And I think that it's very hard to express how a hero like Arthur, like how big was he? Oh well, he could you know uproot an oak tree or something. If you can say he can cover that landscape that landscape with those hills and those valleys and those rivers and those impassable forests if he can do that just as part of a hunt that's how big Arthur is so I was really interested in how the landscape is a method of characterization yeah oh it's brilliant it is to look at something so well known as well and find a different way to tell it um that sort of doesn't take into account like Ray Winston running around and Disney <laughs> and what they've done to the story. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Let's do one more. I'm going to make people buy the book if they want to read about the Loch Ness Monster because we don't want to give them everything. But let's do something mm-hmm. Scottish. Who was the Angel of the Scots? I love this story. And if anyone loves RuPaul, they'll love it too. Yeah. Um, so basically, the legendary sort of founding king of scotland is kenneth mcalpin or he's sort of the first king of the scots according to legend and uh and he he really wants to claim more territory than he currently possesses or or win more territory than he currently possesses and most of it is being occupied by the picts Uh, and if people you might recognize the picts they they're a kind of they're a society that was completely wiped out they were probably a celtic peoples that occupied a lot of the north of britain in the early middle ages and um and the picts have really annoyed him because they're meant to follow so they've got an agreement with the scots they're meant to kind of only choose uh rulers from the female line because the scots provided them with wives earlier on in history and this kind of thing um so anyway they've done they've stolen a, a dog which is has really irritated him and they're also doing this thing with the queen's uh, the royal line so he says he's trying to convince his barons to to make war against them and they don't want to and so he comes up with a very elaborate plan which involves a extremely glittery costume made of fish skins um <laughs> Brilliant. And and that is that is the moment that you know the first king of Scotland sort of changes the, the fate of his of his uh, dynasty. That's um, amazing. I'll leave it there and let people let people want more, I suppose. But yes, absolutely. Um, we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't talk before we go about the artwork in this book. It's yours, and you've mentioned it's lino cards. Why mm. that medium, and how long did it all take? The medium was really the moment, I suppose, when I, there's this, you know, I guess with any kind of world, because there, there is an element of world creation in this, because it's fantastical, it's set in, in the mists of time. Um, and I suddenly found it beautiful when I started illustrating it in Lino Cut with this very economical um, 
compositions and this you know you can use you can leave a large areas of black with lino cut if you're using black ink i use black ink um there was something about it that was so there was so little information and in the yeah. same way about the myths it's like yeah there are large areas of of black of dark matter in in these myths as well you know that we have these fragments of text surviving and that's part of what makes them beautiful and not you don't want to over describe i think when you retell them or illustrate them so lino cut really lent itself to that um and so when i've the other thing i've been really careful with in illustrating them is not historicizing so i haven't used period specific costume on the characters they're basically either naked or silhouetted or in qu quite fluffy fur collars mm. um but uh that's a way of um i suppose rendering them as archetypes they are the landscape is the thing that that is recognizable perhaps and it's much more um about seeing seeing the humanity in the characters yeah um and and the emotion in their in their in their um stories and for instance I, I started to see them in that kind of archetypal way like especially the giants when um when gog magog dies the sort of the last giant of albion he came to me to symbolize a kind of extinction or a sort of domination of nature um because he's this just very uh, possessive presence on the landscape and the civilizing trojans come in um wanting to claim it and so yeah, I think I think that's what Lino it, it sort of made it essential, um, and uh, and and turned turned characters and moments into symbols for How me. How long did they all take? Um, well, I started doing them when I was finishing my PhD, so that was that was against November twenty eighteen. Yeah, and I finished them. I, I really wanted to travel and see a lot of the places that I was um, writing about. Of course, COVID made that yeah. slightly more difficult. <laughs> So I uh, I um, toured around in August when I was allowed to and saw a whole load of the sites and came back with fresh fresh inspiration um, to finish off the lino cut. So that was you know I guess November 2019 to August 2020, um, and some of them were helped with. I, I recorded some songs as well to go with the lino cuts in the book that's on Spotify. So mm -hmm. an EP called Songs for Albion, um, and so it was all. It, I guess. That, the lino cuts, the prose and the music were all ways of like trying to home in on the emotion of the stories because that's the thing that will really speak to us now. It's brilliant. I hope a thousand years from now someone finds it and that's like the text they use for the early. I really hope so. Yeah, it's taking in a in a long tradition of retelling medieval stories according to the present. So, yeah. Amy, this has been brilliant. The book Storyland is out now. It's on our bookshop online uh, and it is fabulous. It's such a good idea. Really Thank good you. idea. <laughs> Thanks very much. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. 
And here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.